Do we have any insights into other sort of longevity interventions that people think about and their impact on oral health um, in either in preclinical studies in mice or in people? And I mean, you know, it's kind of like the, li the, the, the list that everybody's going to think of, metformin yep. or NAD precursors right. or off-ketoglutarate or caloric right. restriction, you know, other dietary things. Do we know of anything that is effective or where there's even a hint? Um, or maybe that goes the other direction. Yeah, the... Not that I'm aware of, but I could tell you what's, and you always say this, what's a really low-hanging fruit is you go back to all those ITP studies, kind of what we did in the, our first So study. just oh, ITP, sorry. mouse yeah. interventions testing program. Yeah. Yeah. Mouse intervention testing program. And kind of what we did with the rapamycin was just go back to all those interventions. Yeah. They have everything stored. Yeah. And see if any of those interventions actually have an impact, like metformin, right? Yeah. Um, patients are diabetic, right? And they are taking metformin. So they probably have some sort of gum inflammation already underlying there. Right. So maybe they can look at those mice yeah. that have taken metformin or other, you know, compounds that they have. Uh, but I think I think you'd have to be cautious because, you know, a lot of those compounds, at least from the ITP, only certain compounds do extend lifespan, right? That's right. So it's not it's not every single compound. But it that is does possible it. that some compounds might not extend lifespan. I mean, metformin's a good example. Right. In the ITP, metformin did not extend lifespan, but there's a whole body of evidence that metformin does have impacts on metabolic health right. and potentially right. some other right. age related diseases or functional measures. Right. So it might be the case that it would have yeah. an impact there. It's interesting. I mean, it's almost I mean it begs the question, like, why hasn't that been done? <laughs> Maybe they just don't have a dentist on their team. Yeah, or right? it's yeah. because they couldn't get a grant to do it. I mean, right, the, the things that get funded or don't get right. funded by NIH don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. But um, right. uh, no, it seems like really smart. And we'll talk a little bit about that that mouse work that you were referring to yep. with rapamycin, where we looked at at uh, teeth from the yep. mice treated with with rapamycin. Yep. Yep. Um, I think a good starting place might might be to to just go back briefly to that conversation we had in 2015 when you, you came to my office and you know you're, you were sort of convincing me why I should pay attention to the mouth and uh, just refresh for our viewers, you know, what is the connection between aging and oral health? Yeah, so um, the, with age, a lot of the tissues in the mouth decline, like the functionality of it. Uh, cell processes decline and they happen very slowly and so um, and because of that you have increased risk for uh, like periodontal disease or gum disease or you know like you said salivary dysfunction cancer and that leads to subtle changes like taste taste bud changes um, and so um, and, and we and we follow this all the time and patients know about this right um, but the downside right now is as dentists we have no idea how to actually treat them or actually how to um, how to, uh, you know, regenerate some of these areas to go back to where they were. Because once you have periodontal disease, you have periodontal disease. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so there is that strong relationship both biologically, but also clinically we see this, but there's really not much that we could actually do right now. Yeah. And, you know, back in 2015, when, when we started down this path, um, what was sort of the state of the understanding of the research at, at that point? Because I get the impression that, you know, like you said, you know, of course, dentists kind of knew that right. old people have more oral problems, just like medical doctors know that older people have more medical problems. But what was kind of the state of scientific knowledge at that point? Yeah, I mean, if I can cautiously say this, I think people, and this goes back to part one where we talked about really good science, where people talked about aging but it wasn't really actually aging. And we actually published a small little review on this where people would say, well, these aged mice have this, 
But when you actually look at the aged mice ages, right, they're comparing like a three to four week old mice to a 12 to 14 uh, yeah. old one, right? So, so they are mistake. Yeah. So yeah. they're all old. So yeah. I think this goes. So down, maybe yeah. this is worth um, just uh, taking a minute to really talk through like what, what is normal aging in a mouse? Like right. in terms of actual chronological numbers, right? right. right. So what would you consider uh, sort of young mouse, middle-aged mouse and old yeah. mouse? Um, so a young mouse, you know, probably like four to six months, right? And uh, mice again, yeah. develop pretty rapidly, right? Exactly so right. they're yeah. sexually mature by what age? Four, uh, four months. Yeah. Certainly. Probably even before that. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, and then, you know, middle age, you're looking at probably like, you know, 13 to 16 months, like in mm -hmm. that range, like 12, 14. I mean, the range is always a little bit different. So, so again, middle age is a tricky term too, right? But so, so that would be maybe the equivalent of what, a 40, 40 year old, old yeah, person? Yeah, 35, 45, okay. kind of in that range. Um, and then there, I've heard certain terms like there's pre-geriatric and there's geriatric mice, right? So if you want to go that way, like maybe like 18, 19, 20, that month's yeah. range is like, your basic pre-geriatric, and then after 21, 22 months, then you're kind of going on to geriatric, and then some groups will say it's actually after 24, 25 Yeah, I would months, actually right? push back on that and say, yeah. you know, if you're thinking like the geriatric equivalent in a human, right. it's got to be at least 24, maybe right. closer to 27, right, 28. Right. So when right. you start the treatment, like at least 24, 25. Yeah. yeah, but I always think of like a good rule of thumb is 20 year, twenty yep. months mm -hmm. in mice is about yep. 60 years in yep. people, ballpark, yep. Yep. biologically. Yep. That's kind of how we kind of still define it in our lab too. Yeah. Okay. And if anyone's confused, there's an episode on <laughs> chronological age versus biological age. So I'd encourage you to go take a look at that episode and, and I go into a deep dive on what, what that means. But okay. So, so I think what you were saying though, is that, you know, at the time we started really looking at this um, area, mm -hmm. there were only a few studies right. and most of them were using, they were calling them old mice, but they were using mice that right. were really maybe 35 Right. Equivalent of 35 years old in people. And the terminology of age and geriatric, especially when in animal studies, was not being utilized correctly from kind of the aging field sense, right? And I think that's where the in the lab, the synergy worked out because, you know, you knew everything about, oh, well, <laughs> right. Would not you know, most of the stuff. Nobody with, yeah, would agree with yeah. that statement, <laughs> right? Well, like at least from my end, right? Like you understood kind of the aging biology yeah. part, and so and, um, and and maybe we'll go into this too. But you know, um, you know, all the ideas I had to, for example, with periodontal disease, right? Like I remember in the first few meetings, you know, you asked the questions like, uh, like why are we inducing it? Have you just looked at old animals, right? right? And so that really got me thinking. I was like, wow, we actually have been looking at this scientifically. You know, um, and many of the data, sure, they're good data, but it's not relevant to kind of the actual aging biology that's happening. Right. And yeah. this is just very, very common in other fields as well. Again, I think cancer biology is sort of a classic example mm -hmm. here where people try to study an age-related disease in a young animal, right. and you miss all of that altered physiology that goes along with aging. Right. And I honestly think that's why, you know, people always blame mice as the reason yeah. why a lot of drugs that that work in mice don't work in people. I actually think it's not the mice. It's the fact that most of those st studies were done in young mice right. when this is a disease of old right. people. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons why I've always um, felt more comfortable with the idea that things we learn about biology of aging in old mice are actually pretty likely to translate through to people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 
um, uh, you know, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but like even periodontal disease, my idea of coming in was inducing that disease in young animals. Yeah, I remember. Because yeah. that's, that's what we've been doing, right? And this is where it goes back to my point of having a good, you know, a science lab that really does rigorous science. Because your, your first point, and maybe it was not verbatim, was like, why aren't we just looking at old animals, right? And, and, and I understood that now, and, and even then, was that, yeah, the disease is there, but the complete underlying biology is completely—it's dismissing. Right. So, you, and and that's also why a lot of periodontal disease, you know, compounds that been developed or drugs that develop, you know, maybe has not worked because you're only targeting a few things, or maybe you're just targeting whatever happens in a younger animal. Right. So, so at the time, the uh, back to your question of, you know, we haven't really delved in. Uh, aging was there, but there was not good science to. So, it. at that time, had anybody actually? really characterized the change in the oral cavity with age in mice? There's a there is there were a few studies that did that, but it was just more of, okay, these old mice also develop, you know, periodontal disease and that's it. Yeah. It was very basic studies. Yeah. Uh no molecular, no nothing. It was just kind of kind of an observational. Um uh, because at the time most people were thinking, oh, age animals, I actually have to age it out right. for two years. Right. Right. And actually And that's actually study. to be fair to I mean I, I was sort of, you know, a little bit uh, maybe too dismissive of, of the cancer research done in young animals. To be fair, the reason why people do that is because you you could do it a lot faster. You don't have to age right. the mice out to 24 right. months. Right. Now you can commercially buy yep. 24, 28-month-old mice. There's really right. no excuse, yet people st are still doing those kinds of experiments in other fields. But that's a yeah, yeah. maybe a different topic. Um, yeah. So what about non-human primates? I assume they get periodontal disease with age. Had anybody really studied it there? Or is it the same problem where, you know, you don't really use aged non-human primates yeah, in research? Same same thing where they will, I mean, they will use, like we talked about in part one, where they'll use like a ligature model or a silk model to induce mm -hmm. that In disease. young animals. In young animals. Yeah. And um, I, I know there was, a, I think there was one or two studies that actually did it in middle age and they profile kind of the inflammatory changes but um you know the data is out there uh, but really the question was okay like they're just publishing kind of these changes there's no more um there isn't more a science kind of a beyond that right it was mm -hmm. just like oh these are the inflammatory sort of changes. Characterizing just characterize it and then just kind of leave it yeah. there right yeah. yeah and then i assume nobody's ever really i guess i would probably know if they had because i work on the dog aging project, but I'm thinking about companion animals. Like yep. we all know if you've ever had an old dog or an old cat right. that oral health declines with yep. age. And, and, and I would venture to say that most companion animals don't get regular dental checkups. Some do, but yep. most don't. So we've known that it's sort of been a, it is an age related phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't know if anybody's ever really carefully looked at that, even from a Character characterizing perspective, like right. what's the frequency right. yeah. of these things? And um, speaking of companion dogs, yeah, like we know, like cats and dogs, like number one thing they get is periodontal disease, right? Um, and then going back to your point, non-human primates, like we actually see, like now our group, we're seeing that as the animals do get older, they do develop natural periodontal disease, just like mm -hmm. mice. And even not only facility-raised animals, but if you go out in the wild too. Wild non-human primates also develop. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. about wild or zoo animals too. Right, It'd be right, sort right, of another right. place you could imagine looking. Right, yeah. So I, I assume, in, I mean, one of the things about the wild is not every species in the wild lives long enough right, exactly. to make it to old age. So mice right. are a good example. Yeah. In, the, in the lab, a mouse will live to be three, four years sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the wild, they rarely make it through a single year. And so they don't, they don't have the opportunity to right. uncover these age-related diseases. Right. And periodontal disease falls into that category. Right. 
Yeah. So let, I guess let's think about now, at the time you started your thesis, sounds like there have been a couple of papers that had kind of characterized the fact that mice in the laboratory develop periodontal disease. Mm-hmm. What did you set out to do to kind of build on that? How did you start to try to approach this problem? Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of knew in that background. So I actually approached it from kind of the aging biology perspective. Of, okay, what do we know in the field that actually works? You know, like what? What is the pathway? What you know, like as any graduate student, yeah. you're in literature all the time, and so what? What are people actually looking at here, and what is that kind of the area that you know people are interested in? And for us, and for me at the time, it's like, is there a compound out there? And this is before I knew work with rapamycin, or you know, and you know, what is the compound that actually? There's got to be people that show that this works, right? Some some compound extends lifespan, health span, etc. And so uh, while doing the literature search, I mean, I felt you know I found rapamycin. And what was interesting about rapamycin is I knew that as a dentist, like rapamycin was an immunosuppressant, you know, kidney transplant get this, they get oral mucositis. We could talk all about that later. And what was interesting was if you actually look in the literature, like I found like a couple hints where one was, you know, rapamycin actually alters bone turnover. So there were studies that showed that it inhibits osteoclast um, levels in osteoclast or bone resorbing cells. Um, and then there's other studies, like even your lab, that showed that, you know, it alters the gut microbiome, so the right. microbiome itself, right? Um, right, because that was right about the time that you were joining the yeah, lab, right? Exactly, that paper yeah. came out, yeah. And so um, as any other graduate, I had all these projects that I was working on, and so I knew it altered the alt microbiome, and then there's other reports that showed, you know, changes in inflammation, and right. and so, like, those targets, right? Inflammation, microbiome changes, bone turnover, I was like, this is what periodontal disease is. And if periodontal disease is age-related, has anybody looked at yeah. rapamycin in these old animals that live longer? And if they actually rapamycin, if it extends their lifespan, do they actually have less periodontal disease? It, it was just, it just kind of fell, fell, fell together like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I remember when we were talking about this, and I think, you know, one of the ways I thought about it was, you know, there's a hypothesis because it hadn't been formally proven, and maybe mm-hmm. you could argue it still hasn't, but there was a hypothesis that periodontal disease was driven by the biology of aging the same way that other age-related mm-hmm. diseases mm-hmm. are, right? right? And I mean, I say it's a hypothesis. It's it, it, it almost certainly correct. Mm-hmm. But one of the ways you test that is to modulate the biology of aging, slow the biology of aging. And the prediction is that if the model is correct, then you should slow periodontal disease, right? right? right. So that's the way I thought about it. And yeah. then, of course, right, the obvious thing to test was rapamycin because yeah. it was kind of the gold standard at, at that point. So so you designed a project to, like, try to start testing that. Your first paper was titled Rapamycin Treatment Attenuates Age-Associated Periodontitis in Mice. <laughs> so I think we know the answer, but we'll, yeah. we'll still go right. through it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's kind of go through this study and yeah. and and talk about like what was actually done. So right. this figure here is, oh, yeah. uh, I think it's part of figure one from mm-hmm. that paper. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can just kind of walk us through what is being shown here yeah. and, and how did you tackle this problem? Because I thought it was yeah. actually a pretty neat way to to approach this. Yeah, so um, this um, so this was actually from this technique, what you're looking at is called a micro CT. And basically, you know, it's just like any other CT scanner, like in the medical field, but it's a micro, so you're 
can do these in small animals. And this, and this is x-ray ba based yep. for people who might not know what a CT yep. scanner does. So basically, um, you take, you know, small slices, sections of, you know, each area, and you have thousands of hundreds of photos that get combined into this three-dimensional image, a uh, 3D image. And this technique I actually picked up during one of my rotations in that craniofacial genetics lab mm. I talked about, where um, one of my first projects was looking at the retinoid pathway and, and how it relates to cleft lip and palate. And so I was doing these scans um, and learning how to do that on there. Um, but what was also interesting was at the time, I wanted to look at periodontal disease. And in the clinic, the way we diagnose periodontal disease is actually probing around your gum pocket. So when you right. go to your office, you, you know, you hear twos, threes, fours. Pocket depth. Yeah. yeah, pocket depth. We're reading that. So I was thinking, okay, well, how can I actually look at periodontal disease in mice? Because I can't take, you know, take a little probe in there. And I thought, okay, I could just image them. And if the image is three-dimensional space and we know exactly the measurements, we could go in there on the computer and just measure kind of the bone loss. Right. right? Um, and uh, so what you're what you're looking at here is a figure from a young animal on the left, and this is the 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 top teeth of the mice. And on the right, you're looking at an old animal where you could clearly see kind of we talked about grinding earlier, but mice do grind, so you can see the grinding patterns and the clear bone loss that just happens between um, the areas that are marked in the yellow. Yeah, so the yellow lines are a distance measure right. uh, from two landmarks, right? right? right. The, let me see if I can remember this. CEJ is yep. cemento-enamel junction, yes. <laughs> and ABC is alveolar bone crest, crest. right? Yes. So, yes. Yeah. so as that distance gets larger, that's right. telling you that the bone has sort of receded yep. downward or upward, depending right. on whether you're at the top exactly. or the bottom of the mouth. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so in this case, the numbers... Uh, when they're larger, mean bone loss. Right. And right. these are C57 black 6J yep. mice, yep. which is just important. I mean, we're, I don't want to get into the weeds of the different mouse strains, but when you're talking about mice in the laboratory, uh, it's important to appreciate that there are different flavors. C57 black 6J is one of the most commonly used inbred lab strains. And one important thing to appreciate about C57 black 6J is because it's an inbred lab strain, it's what's called genetically homogeneous. All of the individuals are essentially genetically identical. I'm, I'm going through all this because we talked about the ITP earlier and we're going to talk about UMHET3, which is a different mouse strain in a minute. Um, so C57 black 6J, Young are two to three months old. Old are about 24 months old. Mm -hmm. So we're, again, ballpark 70-year-old, 65-year-old person yeah. biologically. Okay. Yep. So there's yes. clear loss of bone around the teeth. I think that was sort of known, but maybe yep. never quantified like this carefully exactly, beforehand. Yeah. yeah. Everything was quantified manually using a microscope at the time. Got it. And so then in the next figure, this is showing the effects of rapamycin treatment, again, in C57 black 6J. Right. Um, take us through what the treatment was here. Yeah. So this, so I, I may have to step back a little bit. So I think this is where, um, you know, because I had all these lofty ideas as a new grad student, <laughs> yeah. right? We're going to yeah. buy this. We're going to buy that. Yeah. You know, we're going to get this. And I was this, like, wait you know, a minute. We don't have a grant yeah, to do yeah, this yet. Exactly. So <laughs> I think this By is By the where, way, yeah. we never got a grant to do this. Thank you very much, NIA. <laughs> Among many other things, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think so. Uh, just a backstory about this. So when I when I when we thought about this, we're like, okay, is there existing studies that are being done that we can that have the head pretty much, or that we can look at the oral cavity and evaluate kind of our hypothesis? Right. right. So the idea here is we don't have the money to do the experiments ourselves. Maybe we can find someone else who already 
did something with old mice, right. and we can just get the get the the teeth or the right. jaws right. and measure them. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, um, so this study is from um, I think it was from Ellen Quarles' study where they published on in um, Peter Rabinovich's in Peter lab. lab where they published uh, the report on cardiac function right. uh, in old mice, and so uh, these are from uh, Ellen's cohorts, and so. Uh, these older animals that are treated with rapamycin were on 14 parts per million rapamycin. Right. So that's the dose that um, Ellen Kors gave to the old animals. And and, and just, just for people who may be kind of in the weeds, this is a encapsulated form of rapamycin called E-Rapa added to the food. 14 parts per million is the amount in the food. And what that translates to, right. I don't know off the top of my head, yeah. but this was the this was the amount or the dose that was used in the first interventions testing program study in mice. So it's kind of like the baseline dose I think most people in the field will refer to in mouse studies. Right. Okay, yeah. so 14 parts per million in the food. The mice had been treated for eight weeks. Eight weeks yeah. And this was a, initially a study to look at heart function where they did see improvement in heart function by rapamycin. And then they had kept the bodies of the animals after sacrifice. Yep. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, I mean, I still remember the first thing we asked was, do you still have the heads? Right. And so like, oh, yes, we have that. So we went in there and collected. So this data, what you're looking at is we basically took those measurements we talked about earlier. And, um, and at the time, you know, as a graduate student, one thing that all of us had in, in the lab was actually like we actually support a lot of undergraduate research. And so I had uh, two undergrads that worked with me. So I basically blinded all the samples and I said, okay, these are the metrics that you're going to use to measure this. Please measure it. And then this is the combined data where you're seeing that versus um, the old uh, animals where you see high numbers, which means there's a large difference. Right, more between, bone loss. More bone loss compared to the rapamycin-treated animals, which has less bone loss right. overall. Right. Yeah. And just because, you know, when we talk about the next paper, to be yeah. clear, these are not, so when you go from old to old with rapamycin, these are not the same animals before and after. These are different groups of animals who either got kind of like the placebo, placebo version of a placebo in a mouse, right. we call it a vehicle, right. or they got rapamycin, right? right? Okay. Yeah. And the mice that got rapamycin have less bone loss. Right. But I mean, I think looking at this, you know, there is a statistically significant difference. They had less bone loss. It's not huge, no. yeah. right? But it is it is significant. And yeah. they only got the rapamycin for eight weeks. Right. So, you know, right. you might you might expect that if you had it for longer, you would see more. But right. this was right. kind or of a higher a, dose, right? Yeah, right. or right. higher dose, right. right? But this was kind of a first, I think, indication. There's something yeah. interesting here, potentially. Right. right. Um, okay. So then what happened next? Um, so then, uh, what's the next one? Ah. So then we talked about ITP earlier. Yeah. So then it goes along. We didn't have money to do this. We didn't have the <laughs> grant. Okay. I'm pretty sure people store things, especially the ITP will kind of store these animals. So right. uh, we, or, or Matt reached out uh, to the ITP and said- Specifically to Rich Miller, to Rich who Miller, is yeah. one of the PIs. Uh, he's the right. PI at the Michigan site yep. for the interventions testing program. Yeah. So we asked Rich Miller, hey, we have this really kind of interesting result. Um, and is there a way we can get the animals from that ITP study yeah. that you have still stored? And can we yeah. can we look at those animals? Yeah. And I just want to give a plug for the ITP because I think the, there are many great things about the ITP. I'm a huge proponent of continuing that program. I think it's been hugely important. But one of the things they do really well is they store tissues, they biobank tissues, and they are very, very willing to, to give those away to other investigators yeah. to support yeah 
other types of studies. So we were very fortunate, right, right to be right. able to get access to these animals. And this is the point I think that we were talking about a little bit earlier, where the same thing that you did here with the rapamycin-treated mice could be done with ITP mice for every other drug that right. extended lifespan. Right, right, right. Really interesting question. Somebody should do that um, someday. <laughs> so, so anyways, we got okay. mice from Rich. Yeah. Uh, so go ahead, take One us through this. One thing, too, I wanted to also thank Rich was that, I mean, when we presented it, he was, he was obviously you know, excited about it, but also because of the lifespan, right, uh, and this is kind of, we had to pick the right animals that kind of died around the same age to right. control for that. Right. And I remember Rich bringing that up and saying, okay, to do this, we have to actually, and, and you mirrored this too later yeah. on, like early on too. And so he kind of went out of his way to actually find yeah. those animals. Let me yeah. make a point so, here yeah. because I think it may not be clear to people who are watching this is that in the study we just showed from Peter Rabinovich's and Alan Quarles uh, mice, those mice were sacrificed right. at probably 24 months of age or something like that at the end of the experiment. Mm -hmm. So they were sacrificed. The mice from the ITP died naturally, and then they store the biosamples. So it creates a different complication in the experiment when you have mice, some of the mice died at 24 months, some at 26 months, some at 28 months, some at, in this case, 35 to 37 months. Yeah. And one of the questions is, are they dying for different reasons at those ages? We don't know. Um, but yes, yeah, so so Rich made the point that that we want to be careful to make sure that we're selecting mice that died at about the same age same range. Age, right, right. And so I, you know, and that was, you know, he, he could have just said, yeah, here's the animals without yeah. really giving us that, you know, extra thing. So, I, you know, I wanted to think. So anyway, so what you're seeing here is very similar to what we showed you before is uh, we took these old animals and you know, it was very clear from these U, these um, UMF threes, um, these this um, mice that you know the rapamycin was actually doing something. Yeah. Because, um, and this is just one image that I'm showing you, but um, uh, what we're finding is that the old animals, and obviously we didn't have the like the young UMF three animals in this case, but the old animals had that bone loss, which is again the higher number there, and all of the animals that were treated rapamycin lifelong, starting at I think nine months. Um, showed that still that significant attenuation yeah. or less bone loss overall. Right. Um, and so, um, and that's kind of what you're seeing both in the imaging and as well as the data. Yeah. And a couple of points to make again. So we talked previously about C57 Black 6J. The interventions testing program uses UMHET3 mice. The reason why that's important is the UMHET3 mice are instead of being inbred, genetically heterogeneous. So they're a, a mix of four different genetic backgrounds. Every individual is genetically different from every other individual. So many people, including Rich, who's very vocal about it, feel that the UMHET3 are a superior mouse model for studies of aging and a variety of other things because of that genetic heterogeneity. I think what's really nice here is we're seeing the same impact of rapamycin in two very different genetically mouse backgrounds, two different doses. So this is 42 ppm, so a higher dose. Also, this is different in the sense the mice were treated lifelong starting from nine months of age, whereas in, in Peter and Ellen's uh, study, they were only treated for eight weeks starting in middle age. Right. Again, what we don't really have is a way to compare the same mice before and after rapamycin treatment, right. um, but, I, but we'll get to that because yeah, I yeah, think yeah. That's, that, yeah. that's obviously one of the important questions that remained after this study. So in any case, I think, you know, when I saw this, I was pretty convinced, and I yeah. know you were, yeah. that, okay, this is, this is real, right? Okay. Rapamycin is at least attenuating mm -hmm. bone loss, slowing it down um, in 
mice. And I think we can make, uh, we may, maybe not in all genetic backgrounds, but at least in two very different genetic backgrounds. So very reassuring to see that um, it seemed to be shared across the different uh, genetic backgrounds. So I think then at this point, you know, there's a couple of questions you could ask, right? Is it only affecting bone loss or is it affecting other things in the oral cavity? And I think a particularly interesting question is, is rapamycin just slowing the loss or is it doing something else, right? And so then I know you set out to try to answer those questions in the next study. And I think you convinced me that even though I didn't have a grant to fund this <laughs> uh, and never did get a grant to fund right. this, we thank you very did, much, yeah. NIA, despite trying over <laughs> yeah. and over and yeah. over again, yeah. um, that we could somehow figure out a way to scrape up enough resources and yeah. find yeah. cool collaborators. <laughs> and and so I think this allowed us to do what turned out to be a really, uh, really cool study. Um, so. The second paper of yours that I wanted to talk about, you know, really, I think, tried to answer both of these questions. And the title of that paper was Rapamycin Rejuvenates Oral Health in Aging Mice. So you keep giving away the punchline yeah. in the title of the paper. But still, I <laughs> yeah. think it's worth going through this to, to set up for people like what was done and, yeah. and, and what, we, what we can conclude and maybe what we can't conclude. Um, so this uh, really, I think, just kind of sets up the design. So maybe yeah. take us through you know, what was done here. And I yeah. mentioned finding some cool collaborators right. that allowed us to do yeah. this. So maybe talk through what I was referring to there as well. Yeah. So um, it goes back to the same repertoire, right? We didn't have funding, didn't ever get funded. Um, and so we were trying to figure out, okay, how do we plan the next next cycle? And so um, around the same time, I was able to, um, uh, we were able to get some um, older mice because uh, I, I was able to apply for a fellowship uh, through NIDCR, right, um, and uh, and just for people for people who may not be in the weeds on NIH, so NIA, which I keep mentioning in passing, is the National Institute on Aging. That's where that's where the vast majority of biology of aging research is funded through. That's one of the branches of NIH. NIDCR is the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial and Research. Cranial facial research, right? Yep. So that's kind of the dentistry. Uh, division of NIH, right? right? Yeah. Okay. And so um, I applied for for dual degrees. It's called an F thirty fellowship. So I applied for that fellowship, and that and just I was, meant I didn't have to pay your salary anymore. And yep, yep. You got a small amount of funds yeah, for research. So I helped out in some way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what allowed that? What getting that fellowship allowed me to do was get animals from the NIA because I specifically put in right aged animals in that grant. Right. So at this time, and I think it still exists, yeah, yeah. National Institute on Aging had an aged rodent colony, but not everybody could get access to it. Only right. people who had NIH-funded grants to study aging biology right. could get access to the aged animals. And I believe back then, we didn't have the money anyways, but I don't think old mice were this was probably right about the time they started to become commercially available. Yeah, so right, right. I don't think they were they were widely commercially yeah, available yet. Yeah. Okay. So so we were able to get those animals through that, and then right around the same time, um, and I don't know, I still don't know exactly how that happened. It just kind of merged together where we got this opportunity with the Jackson Labs. Right. right? So that that was a case where. We mentioned briefly the Nathan Shock Center in the last ep episode. So Jackson Labs has a Nathan Shock Center, and Nathan Shock Centers um, are are uh, mandated to give out pilot projects. And so the Jackson Labs Aging Center, which is sort of an umbrella over their Nathan Shock Center, um, has uh, done this really smart thing where they have 
made used Nathan Shock Center resources and Aging Center resources to make aged animals available for experiments to the whole community. And people can just, you know, there's a there's a competitive proposal process, but people can propose an experiment. And if it and if it seems like it's uh, going to have an impact, then they'll go ahead and do the experiment there often on the animals. So so I knew the PIs of the Jack's Nathan Shock Center and proposed this experiment, or I don't, maybe you even wrote the proposal. Yeah, so we wrote the proposal up, and it, it just happened, you know, I still don't remember exactly at what sequence it came, but it happened kind of simultaneously yeah. where we got the NIA mice, yeah. and we got this Jackson pilot. Yeah. Let's just do both. Yeah, right? and I mean, this is often how it goes yeah. when you don't yeah. have grant funding. You leverage resources, right. and I mean, even still, getting the mice, there's still it's still a pretty expensive experiment, right. but that allowed us to be able to do the experiment when we wouldn't have been able to do this right. if we weren't able to leverage these resources. Yeah. And the neat thing with the Jackson, um, with, with the Jackson collaboration that we had was, I mean, there were other researchers that were interested in kind of understanding how rapamycin was working, and... Um, the additional thing we were able to add on to those cohorts, and, I, and we show it here, is that we actually took a dental CT or micro CT before we even started the rapamycin. Right. And then... And you you would anesthetize the mice, right, right. put them in the CT scanner, right. and then they come out of the anesthesia right. and go on about their lives. Yep. And then they'll get rapamycin, and then right before we had... Or a collect, vehicle. Or vehicle, right? Yep. Uh, the, the placebo uh, yep. of that. And then um, we... Bef right before the tissues were collected, we took a final micro CT just to, you know, and the idea here is to see, okay, we know they're going to have bone loss. Does that bone loss change in that same animal? So right. in the previous study, if it was looking at uh, what uh, this animal would go through the study, another another cohort would go through a study and we just compare. This is actually looking at the same animal over right. a course of time. Right, much more powerful. Right. And then, um, and then with our... Um, the NIA animals, which we raised here in Seattle, uh, we just took um, uh, the micro CT kind of after the words, right? We couldn't do any of the lot, what we call longitudinal kind of CT scan. So we had a cord of animals in Seattle, another cord of animals at Bar Harbor, Maine, doing the same exact treatment. And after eight weeks, us going down there and collecting it. Right. Yeah. And this was with the 42 parts per million. Right. But this time in C fifty seven black six J, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of it's a higher dose than what right. was in the first study with that strain background, right? Right. Yep. But the same yep. dose that was in the UM het threes yeah. from the ITP. And I and I don't know if you remember this, but when we were designing this, we we're like, okay, because there were three dosages that ITP tested. I think it was like, uh, yeah. where was it? Like, uh, I know fourteen was one. It was one third of fourteen, right, so right. four point whatever. Right. Six. And, and so you know, and and I think this was your suggestion was well. The highest dose seemed like it's extending the lifespan. The most. The most. So yeah. let's just go with the highest dose. Yeah. So we just went with the yeah. highest dose. And we right? now know that this isn't even the top end for exactly. lifespan right. extension, but right. it's the highest dose, I think, still that the ITP has yep. tested right. and where they see the biggest lifespan extension at that dose. So right. Right, yeah. that was the yeah. rationale. And then uh, we then uh, sacked them around 22, 23 months. Um, and then uh, and this time, compared to the previous day, we were able to collect like gum tissue, right? bone tissue. So not only do you get the bone measurements, but you can get tissue measurements. Tissue measurements, measurements um, even microbiome, which we'll right. talk a little bit about right. later, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's 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 great. Um, okay, so what did you find when you looked at the bone loss first, right? Because that's right. what we knew from the prior right. studies. We should see a difference between the rapamycin-treated yep. mice and the uh, vehicle-treated mice, right. but we'd never before been able to look at the same animal before right. and after. Right. So, um, um, so on, on 
on here, what we found was in the same animal, the areas that showed bone loss, there was actually gain of kind of hard tissue or bone in that area. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Right. I mean, even still, like I know this data. Yeah. No, yeah. And it's like, yeah. to me, that well, is just like the most amazing yeah. result. And it's not, I mean, so if you really look at the picture, what was what was really neat to me was it wasn't like everywhere, right? Yeah. Some areas still had that bone loss, right? Like yeah, yeah, very minimal, right. but it was only in certain areas. Like there's a term I use called furcation, which is right in between the roots, right? Those areas had a little bit more bone deposits huh. or hard tissue. And do you have yeah. any thoughts on why that is? What we know now is I think it's the underlying kind of immune biology that's happening around the gum tissue. So okay. there's a really neat paper uh, published by Rich Darvo. Um, and I think Camille as well, but um, where they showed that depending on where you're at around the tooth, like neutrophils, the the density and the signaling of that neutrophil is very different, mm. right? Even along that same tooth, yeah, right? Interesting. So I, I think it has to do some uh, with the underlying kind of immune biology that's happening around those areas, also the microbiome uh, in those areas. Right. But obviously in mice, we, we're not going to be able to right. detect it. But um, so what we're able to see is that the same animal treated rapamycin. Uh, had this kind of gain of bone in certain areas, right? right? Um, and and to kind of add on to that, and that was the longitudinal section of it, the mice in Seattle replicated exactly kind of what we found in our first publication, but the attenuation was a little bit bigger, right? Probably because the dose was exactly bigger. right, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. in both sites, both studies, uh, same dose, we're seeing kind of the same trend where there the attenuation. Could potentially just be regeneration, yeah. but it's it's more than attenuation. I mean, I think that's right. the thing that the Jackson cohort told right. us, right? Is there actually is regrowth of bone right. at least in some areas, right. uh, just from this eight week treatment with right. rapamycin. Right. So, yeah. so I think that's a that's to me that's probably the biggest right. discovery that came out of this um, right. uh, paper. Okay, so what else did we we look at in this? Yeah, study? so uh, I basically approached it like any dentist would, right? So I, I see bone loss, right? So then. Periodontal disease is also characterized by gum inflammation. So um, you could think about, uh, and so there's there's gingival inflammation or bone inflammation that happens, mm -hmm. and there's also microbiome changes that are right. tied in with that. Right, and so gingival inflammation is when it reaches a clinical threshold, gingivitis? So so that's, so uh, it might get a little bit, okay, I'll this here a little bit, but so if you have clinical inflammation, so that's visual, right? Um, sometimes the gingiva is inflamed, but it's at a molecular level inflamed. So you might not actually see it. So when we uh -huh, when we sure, talk about periodontal it. disease, yeah. you know, we think about those images online where there's like bleeding gums and all this plaque. Many times it's not like that. Many times it's the gingiva looks okay on the outside, but when you take an x-ray, there's a bunch of bone loss. And when you actually look at, for example, the fluid around those pockets, there's high levels of inflammation. So is gingivitis... Though that's when you can see the inflammation. Is yeah. that? I'm just yeah. wondering how it's actually diagnosed. Clinically diagnosed, yeah. So and if you have active inflammation with bleeding, so when you're probing around and you don't have bone loss, that's gingivitis. Got it. If you have a bone loss, then that's when it turns into periodontal. Got it. Disease. Okay, thank you. So um, for us, you know, we didn't see any like big, you know, like gingivitis, like red bleeding gums in right. animals. But so looking at inflammation and microbiome were the two other components that would really kind of tie this together in terms of periodontal disease um, with that. And so we looked at kind of both aspects. And what did you see? So with the inflammation, with the age-related mice, um, and, and we've seen this with other studies too, where that increased inflammation in the gum tissue with rapamycin gets gets decreased. Right. Um, and you looked at 
inflammation in the bone as well, if I remember exactly, correctly. Exactly, yeah. In the same yeah. in the same thing, specific inflammatory related markers in the bone also decreased right. over time. Um, and what what really kind of gave me, I mean, even with the bone loss data, I was convinced. But what really convinced me was the microbiome data, because the hmm. microbiome data, you know, we knew that the rapamycin. I mean, this is again, this is in the food, like we talked about. It's encapsulated, right? It's not, it doesn't get out in the mouth. Right. It, it, it gets distributed in the small intestines, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And so it's systemic, right? Right. And so we knew that, and even in our data, we show that the old animals have a completely different microbiome. Right. 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 And I'm just going to, I'm going to yeah. double click on that just, just to it reinforce what you said. Cause I actually think this is an important point that we maybe don't know the answer to yet. But in this experiment, because of the way the rapamycin is formulated, it's in this enteric coated right. micro encapsulation. The expectation is that none of that drug, even though it's in the food, actually gets directly on right. the oral tissues. Right. It, it is designed to go through the stomach acid right. and then be released in the small intestine. So we don't think there's any direct effect of rapamycin on the oral microbiome. Um, it's because rapamycin is presumably getting taken up and getting into the circulatory system. Now, right. it could get delivered back to the oral tissues, right. but we don't think it's a direct application to the mouth right. itself. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's a systemic dose that's not actually directly affecting the oral microbiome. And so, right. um, and just for people who may be wondering if they know anything about rapamycin, we wouldn't expect rapamycin, even if we put it right on the oral microbiome, to have any impact on the bacteria there, because bacteria don't have mTOR, which is the target of rapamycin, right. but there's all sorts of fungal species right, in both right. the gut and the oral microbiome, and we right. know rapamycin is a potent antifungal. Right. So it certainly could impact the microbial composition mm -hmm. through its antifungal effects. Right, right. If it's a directly applied yeah. Yeah, on there, yeah. yeah. Um, and so with the rapamycin-treated animals, what we saw was that not only were they had a completely different profile than the old, so the old were treated with just placebo. Yeah. But the microbiome actually looked very similar to the younger right. animals after rapamycin after rapamycin treated, treated right? And so that right there, I mean, you we if 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 our thought is correct, where there's no direct impact on the microbiome of rapamycin, showing the the regeneration of that bone, showing the inflammation with a complete separate kind of organism that has a complete now different profile. I think that really kind of encapsulated kind of everything exactly what. You know, we were expecting yeah. it to happen. What yeah. do you think is the mechanism for the change reversion, apparent reversion right. of the microbiome? And I'll just say yeah. it's interesting because in the study that Alessandro Bito did mm -hmm. in my lab where um, he looked at the microbiome, the gut microbiome, mm -hmm. we, I mean, we didn't specifically look for reversion. I'm not sure that we would have we would have detected it the way we did the analysis, but that didn't come out of that study, that right. it actually, we, we knew, we saw a difference between the young microbiome and the old microbiome, and then the rapamycin microbiome was kind of off somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. It didn't seem yeah. to move that gut microbiome clearly, at least, back right. to a useful state, right. which was different than the case with the right. oral microbiome. The one thing with Alessandro's paper, though, remember it was, I think it was, we did it with fecal samples. So it uh, wasn't directly, yeah. it wasn't directly inside the colon. Yeah. So, so, I mean, this is another thing that I know we talked about, which I don't think ever we got done, but, you know, looking directly into those intestines and seeing yeah. if those profiles yeah. are different. And right? there you might actually expect to yeah. see more of an antifungal effect because of the release in right. the small intestine. Right. So but, yeah, different, different design, right. different potential mechanisms there. Good point. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, and, and the microbiome, and, and to me, I keep going to the microbiome is a lot of things we do in dentistry is 
because of these microbes, right? Yeah. Dental cavities, dental right. cavity caries, right? Peridonsi, you know, there's some bacteria. The the cleanings and things you get is the idea behind it is the toxins that are released by those microbiome that causes these changes. If you can clean out those microbiome and have a clean kind of a, a platter, yeah. you know, allows the disease to not progress, right? So, yeah. And is it generally thought to be the case that the age-related changes in the oral microbiome are also more inflammatory? Because yeah. I mean, we think with the gut microbiome, not necessarily that the microbiome itself is more inflammatory, but in part because of changes in the gut barrier, mm -hmm. you get more microbial antigens that escape that and get into circulation induced inflammation. But you could also imagine that if there are new microbes or microbes mm -hmm. showing up with age in the mouth that are, you know, at very low prevalence or in different places, right. that right. could actually induce an immune response. Yeah, yeah. no, and, and that's certainly, I know there's groups that are working on that, like um, uh, not specifically with age, but um, there are groups working on that. I mean, the other aspect to this is um, not just the microbiome, but also the tissue, right? So, so, so um, everybody's going to have some sort of different microbial profile. But to your, to your previous point, yes, it is going towards this kind of pathogenic potentially. Um, exactly what actually turns it into a clinical outcome, like I don't think we know yet. Um, Has anybody done microbiome transfers in the mouth where you take like a young microbiome and put it into an old mouth? They must have. It sounds really simple to do, but <laughs> I don't, I don't, oh no, actually, no, 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 they they did. They no. They have done that in mice. Well, it was people? actually in germ-free mice. So they uh, were. Okay. So they transferred, yeah. um, kind of the so the 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 regular mice that you see in the facility. They're called you know specific pathogen-free mice or SPF mice, and they have a certain microbiome. And so um, one of the studies they show was actually transferring some of the SPF uh, um, oral microbiome into the germ-free mouse to see if it kind of and just for our viewers germ-free what is what do you mean germ-free means that they're they're um well one is it's really expensive to do right um but they're encased and uh, basically there's absolutely nothing that goes in there so they they have no um gut so they've microbiome. been cleared out they've been cleared out and the facility is airtight like, right um and that's why it's really expensive to do and so um, in that study, they were able to kind of transfer the oral microbiome into those germ-free animals to look at kind of periodontal disease progression um, and really kind of uh, see kind of what kind of oral microbiome uh, micro microbes actually cause sort of Got disease. It. And um, and so I know they did a study like that. In terms of young and old. I mean, it's interesting, right? So there's, yeah. you know, again, quality of the data, I'm not right. completely convinced, but there's some reason to believe that you can do this sort of microbiome transfer in the gut these fecal microbiome right. transfers from young to old and mm -hmm. have some benefits. It would be interesting to know whether the same yeah. thing's yeah. true in the in the mouth. Um, okay, so we kind of talked about the oral microbiome. Um, I think one question we weren't really able to answer here, and I don't know if you've got a feel for this yet, mm -hmm. uh, is whether or not uh, mTOR inhibition, so again, rapamycin is an inhibitor of mTOR, so I think we're very confident the mechanism is going through mTOR here, but whether mTOR inhibition systemically is driving these effects or locally in the mouth, right? And I know lots of people have asked you, lots of people have yeah. asked me, what about rapamycin toothpaste? Right, right. And I think the answer to that question, um, we need to know that answer before we have any idea whether rapamycin right. toothpaste is going to work. So right. is it because of rapamycin getting to the mouth, mm -hmm. presumably in our case through the circulatory system, or is it because of rapamycin acting somewhere else in the body right. that's driving this? I mean, what are your right. current thoughts? Uh, so my, I think it's a systemic response that's happening because 
if you think about it in terms of aging biology, this this makes sense. Um, I mean, we know, and I don't know if this is going to go into that route, but we know plenty of off-label use of rapamycin. Sure. Right. And we know people have, you know, these positive experiences that they're encountering. I mean, obviously, we've got to do a clinical trial to actually validate some of those claims, but um, especially with their mice studies. And, um, and, and it really ties into the fact that by inhibiting inhibitor, whatever that's doing systemically, and it's showing up in the mouth, um, I think that's kind of the mechanism that, that, that that's actually going to happen, yeah. And, so, and do you think that's immune-mediated, or? I, I, I think it's most likely immune-related, um, because one of, uh, oh, so one of the major components of periodontal disease is those kind of immune dysregulation. Mm -hmm. And that's one aspect that, and that's age-related, right? And that's an aspect that never gets targeted in the current therapy. The only thing we target in periodontal disease right now is that microbiome, right? And just from our study, it's not just microbiome. There's inflammation that happens. Yeah, there's right. bone loss that happens. There's micro. There's there's you know you know all this other aging biology that's happening that we probably haven't even uncovered. And so you think this, that that is driven the at least the inflammation and yep. perhaps the bone loss is driven at least in part by infiltration of immune cells yep. into those oral tissues. I think it's a, a lack of. So it, it's not able to cope with the ability to kind of fight back. Against the oral microbiome. Against the oral microbiome. Or even, um, and because of, you know, decline in the immune dysregulation of the gingival tissue and the yeah. bone. Right? And so, at the same time, you're getting higher inf sterile inflammation, right? right. So it's this right. dysregulation. Right, right. Which again, we know in other tissues, rapamycin is very potent at sort of right. restoring right. that yeah. balance. It's right? almost like reset. I, I don't know if I could say resetting things. I, where I mean, I think that's a reasonable way to yeah. think about it. Yeah. yeah, so it's resetting kind of the inflammatory you know, mediation so that now you're able to cope with whatever's happening better. So, okay. So at the end of this study, right, I think we knew, or at least we were very confident based on the mm -hmm. data that rapamycin treatment could partially reverse mm -hmm. age-related bone loss, very potently, apparently reverse age-related increase in inflammation and at least partially revert the oral microbiome back to something more like a youthful microbiome. Right. Okay. So is there anything you've learned since then that yeah. you think is, is important yeah. and cool here? So one thing we're finding out is that those kind of positive effects that's happening with the um, paranoia is being persistent. So there was another study that we did right after this was um, so the, the idea is, okay, so after eight weeks, we have all these positive changes. Right? So even with Ellen's study we talked about earlier, there's cardiac uh, function improvement, and we see periodontal disease. So after eight weeks, what actually happens? Yeah. So if, if the medication gets stopped, right, af after a while. Yeah, how long does it last? How long does it last, yeah. right? And so uh, we designed a study where, um, you know, we uh, gave the animals eight weeks rapamycin, and then we took them off and then let them go on kind of the placebo diet. Um, and what we're finding is that the inflammation markers, uh, the it's actually persistent. So it's actually even persistent even after eight weeks. Now you could argue like, maybe we have to take it out longer, uh, but at least we know that that short term is enough to carry out the down uh, decrease in inflammation even eight weeks after. So the, at the, about the same length as about the treatment, About the same length right? of treatment And time. did you go long enough to see when they come back or do you have a no, feel for no. that yet? So, we did write a grant on that. Uh, Denver, uh, so again, I mean, maybe it's just dentistry and aging biology hasn't quite merged yet. But um, so uh, we're we're going to probably seeking that. funding. Yeah, yep. seeking Understood. funding. Yeah, but that would be another question, right? So yeah. at what point does it come back up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that could definitely 
alter kind of some of the clinical trials that are happening, right? right? And, and so, also what happens if you do like cycles, right? right? Maybe cycles, it comes right. back in 16 weeks, you do right. another eight weeks, right. yeah, all sorts of interesting right, stuff right, right. there. Um, what about the salivary gland? Yeah, so another... You know, this is something that I'm yeah, really interested in, uh, yeah, and we never yeah. actually nailed that. We never published it, but uh, what we found... So not only periodontal disease, but we also looked at kind of salivary function, and you could right. do that in mice. Right. Um, we know that in old mice, the salivary flow decreases with it. And that's and, true in people as well, right? Right, exactly. And and if you look at histology of salivary glands, there's like senescence, there's atrophy. So that's So we could actually quantify the salivary flow. In a subset of our animals that were treated with rapamycin, we actually looked at, okay, how does the salivary flow change? And the salivary flow actually increased, and I know you've seen this data, where um, in the animals that were treated with rapamycin, there was actually an increase yeah. in salivary flow. Um, and, and really the question was, okay, why is this happening? Like, what are, you know, and it goes back to kind of the science, right? Like, what is the mechanism of why this is happening? But yeah. it's actually increasing salivary flow, at least in mice. Yep. Um, and, and also reducing inflammatory markers, Exactly, right, right in the salivary glands. Right? Yeah, and and I, I don't want to get too far. I, I assume at some point you would like to publish this data. So yeah. maybe you don't want to give too much away, but if you're comfortable talking about it, like, what do you think that inflammatory signal is coming from in the salivary gland? It's a combination of various tissues in there. So, it, it, you know, salivary glands are always stored in there. It always gets circulated. Um, and so... Uh, there's a variety of tissues in there, and I think some of the inflammation and uh, is coming from actually senescent cells mm -hmm. from the salivary glands, yep. and we're actually seeing that, you know, histologically and um, timing-wise, and that is probably driving some of the inflammation. That right. So, so again, aging. We know one of the hallmarks of aging is increase in senescent cells. We know senescent cells give off a strong inflammatory signal, this senescence-associated secretory phenotype. And so you see that in the salivary gland and there's, and we know even from other studies, rapamycin again, it's very potent at knocking down that inflammatory signaling in senescent cells. It's called a senomorphic. It doesn't right. kill the cells, but it knocks down the inflammatory signals. That makes perfect sense. And yeah. again, this is just, this just makes, I cannot believe that you've submitted grants on this and they haven't been funded. And again, I'm yeah. not dependent on NIH funding, so you don't have to say <laughs> anything, but it is just ridiculous that we don't know the answer to this because some reviewers don't right. seem to think it's important. It just makes no sense to me. So if there's anybody listening who yeah. would really like to fund cool, important biology, it would be great to know, you know, how is rapamycin yeah. impacting salivary function and does it do that in people? Because if it does, that's a big deal. So anyways, uh, it's very frustrating to me that we, that you haven't been able, haven't yeah. been successful at getting these grants funded. I'm not blaming you because I've had lots of grants not funded. Uh, sorry, I don't want to, I don't want to keep going on the point, but like, I still remember one of the comments we I got back or maybe you remember is um, because mice don't get ulcers, it's not a good model for rapamycin. I think that was one of the comments we got. Because they don't get ulcers. Because they don't get the mouth sores. They don't get the and mouth actually, sores. we don't know that that's not that that's true. I don't true even know even. either, right? But, but or yes. like, okay, well, so anyway. quality quality review at NIH. Yeah, Thank I you know. very much. Okay, <laughs> um, so okay, so let's talk about humans, right? Okay. So because uh, obviously that's you know of interest yep. to to many humans. Um, what do we know about rapamycin and its effects on oral health in humans? And I mean, let's start with the sort of you know anecdotal stuff mm -hmm. from people who've been using rapamycin off-label. You were a co-investigator on the study where we published the paper mm -hmm. last year, collecting data from, I think it was 333 people using rapamycin off-label and then about 150 yeah. people who'd never used rapamycin. Right. We didn't look specifically at oral health there other than the only side effect that was higher in the rapamycin users was mouth sores. Right. I think about 15% of people right. experienced that. 
Um, but you've been since looking at some of that data yeah. and exploring that. So to the yeah. extent you're you're able to share, yeah. like what what have you learned from that? Yeah, I mean, maybe I think this is a good time to kind of talk about mouse stories a little bit. I don't want to go too sure. much into it because, you know, when I first joined your lab or, you know, when I'm in this field, mouse stories always comes up. Right? With rapamycin. With rapamycin. Because that's right? the most common side effect seen right. in organ right. transplant right. patients. So to be clear, patients who are taking mTOR inhibitors, you know, rapamycin or amvolimus, et cetera, um, who are having, who had an organ transplant are very, are taking very high dosages very frequently to suppress the immune system. Right. Right. And as a part of that, one of the side effects is mouse sores. But, right. but, but, yeah. but you must see mouse sores all the time exactly, as a dentist right. and lots of people who aren't taking Exactly. Right. And I'm not saying mouse sores are, you know, are, are, are painful. Right. So those patients are, who are getting those kidney transplants are getting the mouse sore. There's a specific term for that. It's called MIS, mTOR inhibitor associated stomatitis. Right. Okay. So, so, and stomatitis is just another word for mouse sores, but, right. but of a higher severity. It's like a higher inflammation. And when you look at photos of MIS, you're like, this is really bad. And okay. that causes uh, uh, oncologists, oncologists and physicians to decrease dose in kidney transplant patients. Right. right? And I think a lot, I mean, I, I've heard it's the, often the dose limiting toxicity, meaning exactly. people, right. they're so bad right. that people don't want to take the drug right. anymore. And we're actually doing a separate study with the oral medicine department to see you know, uh, and this is a complete side thing, but, you know, those patients taking, you know, these high dose mTOR inhibitors, you know, where, where's the trajectory going? Like what is actually happening? You dose reduce, does it actually go away? Yeah. Right. So there's some other studies that we're right. doing, but so back to the point of mouth ulcers is mouth sores is that we knew from our study in the off-label use that people have been taking this continually for two years. If some people, if some people, right. If people were taking this off-label and they were getting MIS, like they should not be taking, they they would not have taken, continue taking it. Right. My theory, and and because I don't personally take rapamycin, but from what I've seen or what I've um, kind of visually seen is they're more like canker sores. They're more like little small mouth sores that will go away um, and that's easily manageable. And you're um, saying that that's the case in people using it off label, right. presumably because either the dose is different right. or the schedule is different right. or organ transplant patients are taking a bunch of other drugs. Exactly, right, right. right. Okay. So, and, and also higher dosages, right, yeah. very high dose. And so um, one thing we're following up with the study that we could share is that most of the ulcers that people are reporting are uh, not dose dependent. So just because you get a higher dose doesn't mean you get more hmm. mouse sores. Interesting. Um, and the reports that we get that people are reporting is like they're calling it persistent ulcers. So maybe at the beginning they're getting some, but it just goes away on its own, yeah. right? And so um, it's not that, you know, the Extreme, stomatitis, mucositis, yeah. right? Yeah. And so um, I think one plug here is if you're going to take it off label, like talk to your dentist because they have ways to kind of manage that. Oh, that's if you If you yeah. do have those really bad sores, there's ways that we can manage it really easily. Yeah. Now let me just make one yeah. uh, point about the, the way that we collected the data in that study is that it is possible... So again, most of the doses are like six milligrams yep. once a week, plus or minus five, right? I mean, people right. are kind of all over right. the place. And I think what you said is you don't see any evidence from that data that the dose itself is driving the likelihood right. of mouth sores. And the severity doesn't seem to be at all severe in that group. And I think the point that, that I want to make is simply that there 
it's possible that there were people who started taking six migs of rapamycin once a week, had really, really bad mouse sores. They stopped taking right. it and they didn't take our survey because they right. didn't think that they right. could or should, even though we were, we made the survey open to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is possible that right. we don't, we didn't really have the right group to answer that specific question. This is always the limitation to those right. kinds of right. studies. What you really need is a clinical trial. Right. So let's talk about the clinical trial. Yeah. So you got a grant from the Impetus Grants right. Program right. to uh, start a clinical trial, double-blind, placebo-controlled, mm-hmm. randomized clinical trial of rapamycin for periodontal disease. Right. So take yeah. us through kind of what the goal is here and right. kind of where you're at now. Yeah, so um, the goal is to really just test, does rapamycin help patients with periodontal disease, just kind of mimicking all the mice studies that you've seen. And um, really the design of the trial that we could talk about is, you know, does rapamycin allow patients having periodontal disease and getting the treatment have a better treatment outcome, mm-hmm. right? So currently when you get diagnosed with periodontal disease, you get deep cleanings and you get these dental cleanings to maintain. Um, but if we give rapamycin, could that reset some of the immune kind of functionality so that when these patients actually get the cleaning, do they have a better treatment outcome? Or just rapamycin alone, is that going to be enough to kind of help alleviate some of the symptoms that they're right. having? Um, because rapamycin is not indicated for periodontal disease, we had a, a long haul process to get FDA approval. Uh, and when this. you mean indicated, you mean it hasn't, it, right, it has not been approved by right. FDA for that condition. For that right? specific condition. So for us to conduct a trial at the university, et cetera, um, you know, the FDA pretty much has to approve uh, what's called an investigative new drug application, so an IND. So basically, they need all the data to show, we need to show them that this is safe, that we can get this done. Even though it's approved by FDA, and in principle, right. a drug is right. safe, right. can right. be used safely if it's right. approved by the FDA. Right, and this is where, um, and you and I had discussions about this uh, a long, you know, for a very long time, is I think this is where kind of that translational jump that our field, the aging field has to make, uh, you know, is has been challenging in a certain way, but also why we need it more. Yeah. Is that we know the science is there. Like you talk to anybody, whether it's rapamycin or even the metformin, you know, the science is there, right? But to get it into humans in a controlled trial that the FDA has to get in, that the FDA needs to get involved with, that all that science, you know, kind of goes out the window because there's no clinical data that's been approved to show that it actually is health it's actually safe in healthy people right so from the fda's viewpoint rapamycin is still this immunosuppressant yeah right even if we publish the off-label use right so um it it took a long time so what you're saying though i think is that fda is unwilling to allow any risk or at least has to be a very very low risk in people who don't have a life-threatening disease right and right. periodontal disease is a disease, right. but they didn't don't feel like the potential benefit right. of reversing periodontal right. disease outweighs the very very small risk of right. using rapamycin. Exactly, yeah, and because so, they're uninformed, in my opinion. Right, and and so that's why it took us over a year, multiple meetings, multiple renditions of our protocol, um, working with the FDA, trying to figure out a good medium to get this done, because because. Um, at an academic institute, we need that IND yeah, to actually course. get this trial. You've got to you've got to follow the process, right? All that okay. process. So, um, 
So after almost a year, a year and a half of kind of working with them, they finally allowed, gave us the IND approval to do this trial. Okay. So um, we kind of, you know, I call it, you know, we got the goal, kind of the half of the golden ticket, right? Where now, yes, we're looking at periodontal disease, but we can actually test a lot of the questions you and I were asking during this whole kind of episode on, you know, what is actually rapamycin doing? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so this trial, yes, it's for periodontal disease, but we're actually going to be looking at a lot of other kind of questions that our field was is interested in, um, has been interested in, and really testing some of these hypotheses out yeah. um, at the same time. That's great. So. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but you're not able to go right and do the clinical trial that you wanted to do, right? right. Which I think was six milligrams once a week. Right, right. Uh, so you're doing a, and that's because FDA is requiring you to do what's called a dose escalation. Right. So yeah. you have to test. How, so how is that working? So basically what we need to show is that the dosages that we want to get to, which ideally would think it's going to be six mg, um, six mg, uh, six milligrams per week, or um, is that we need to show that the doses before that is not going to make periodontal disease worse, and it's not going to be unsafe right. to the participants right. in the trial. Okay. Even if you and I know from our label survey and, and many other kind of off-label use that, you know, it, it should be fine. But right. um, FDA needs that data because per them, they don't have that. Right. right? So you're starting at what dose? 0. 0.5. And then so, you're going to go one, one, two, okay. two four. Um, okay. And, and what's, what is really, um, what we, well, the reason why we got excited about that, because, you know, obviously this is not what we wanted to start off with. But once we, kind of let the public know that we're going to do this trial. We had we already have over 100 people Great. in the website wanting to be part of this trial yep. that have never taken rapamycin or interested in taking rapamycin, right. who have periodontal disease. I mean, some people are writing me stories like, I've had periodontal disease for <laughs> yeah, years. I and, get those yeah. emails too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so to me, I mean, I mean, and this goes back to kind of the basic, right? We have to do the science correctly from the beginning. Right. So, And so part of us is that, yes, we have this little hurdle we have to go through, and we're going to go through it pretty quickly. But this is going to be data that I feel that the field can actually yeah, utilize. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there is value in jumping through these hoops, exactly. right? And, and right. like you said, doing doing it the right way. So right. yeah, so that's fantastic. So yeah. you're you're uh, recruiting and enrolling into the dose escalation right mm -hmm. now, and right. then yep. once you get up to presumably six milligrams a week, you'll yep. you'll do the trial. Yeah. So what well, so what we're going to do is. Um, Right now, we're actually going to go higher dosages just from our off-label use data. Mm -hmm. um, so we're actually going to keep escalating up, right? But once we hit that six milligram per week, we're going to jump and 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 start that placebo-controlled trial. Uh -huh. And um, we have an NIDCR grant going in because Good. of that. So I was right? going to ask, like, because yeah. the, the impetus grant, you know, while it was fantastic, and I right. like as as you know, I'm a huge fan of the impetus yeah. grants program. It's not a lot of money, right? So you're working on getting additional funding for right. Uh, for this trial, right, to do the full trial, and so you've got an, an NIDCR grant in, and right. then is there a place where potential donors could come and donate well, to this trial? Because I, I mean, yeah. part of this, part of why I'm taking people through this process is, you know, oftentimes I get asked, well, why hasn't anybody done this? Yeah. And in part, it's because it's expensive, and in right. part, it's because it takes a really long time, and it yeah. is a lot of work right. to write all these protocols right. up and get the right. approvals. So if people are interested in donating to this research, yep. is there a place where they can go and yeah. donate? They could uh, go through our website or go through the lab website that I have linked. Um, I mean, to be straightforward, I mean, what one thing that the Longevity Impetus Grant allowed us to do was um, do this 
you know, like in their like in their um, whole goal is to do this very efficiently. Yeah. Right. I mean, you and I both know the grant system, right? Like we submit a grant now. It doesn't get funded till a year later. Eight, 18 months. And then we don't yeah. even know they're going to say no. So, you know, hypothetically, if we can get the donation, we may not have to go through NIDCR. Right. Right. But. NIDCR works right now because we've already done all the legwork that are major hurdles. Yeah, and it should get funded. I mean, right. don't get me wrong. You should apply for right. it. It should get right. funded, right. but we all know how that process right. works. Right. So. So, so for us, you know, hypothetically, if we don't have to go through the NIDCR, that would be even perfect, yeah. right? Because yeah, then, yeah, yeah. then we don't have to kind of wait. I mean, if we submit the grant, like in February, for example, it, I mean, we know the whole, and maybe, you know, people can look online too, but, you know, it doesn't get reviewed till like, you know, July, and yeah. then the funding decision comes out in September. So you actually don't start, right? And at that point, the the momentum right was lost. So, um, but um, okay. so so we'll post the link yeah. uh, uh, to the website where they yeah. can donate yeah, yeah. directly right, to this right. research. Great. And and we have everything set up. We're I'm, we're pretty much giving an IDCR a platter. Like we have the FDA approval. We already have the placebos made. Right. Right. We already know what dose we're gonna do. We have the protocol already set. This is a great way to give a non-surgical method, right. a very novel method to help people with periodontal right. disease, right? So great. we're serving it on a platter, right? So yeah. anyway, so we're doing the escalation, but what we're going to continue the escalation beyond six, right? We're going to still get FDA approval to do that. Awesome. And then with the six, we're going to jump off and start the placebo. And then and then we're going to keep kind of doing this and then maybe do another placebo and and, and kind of kicking it off from there. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, that's a that's an important question, too, because we really don't know much about right, right. the dose response. And six is sort of an arbitrary number that for reasons we won't get into um, is where most people right, landed. Right. Um, and, and and we'll be asking, you know, one of the primary questions like, OK, for example, mouth. Yeah. Is that really you know, how is that going to be maintained? Right. Um, but there's a lot of things in there that we packed in with. Um, a lot of other kind of scientists, you know, kind of in the back end that yep. we want to evaluate and to kind of see. Great. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited to see what comes out of that trial. Yeah. Um, okay. So is there anything we haven't talked about? We've covered a lot of ground. Anything <laughs> we haven't talked about that you feel, you know, you really want to get off your chest here? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I, I think with, you know, with this YouTube channel and kind of just in general where the public is being aware of kind of longevity science, aging yeah. science. I mean, you know, I, I think for somebody who is brand new, right? I've only been here for you know, eight years, maybe nine years or so. Um, and so I'm relatively new, right? But I have patients coming into the dental clinic asking me about these longevity treatments, right. about their impact on oral health. So people are thinking about it, right? Um, one thing, and it goes, we keep going back to it, but people have to understand that there is strong science and there is not so strong science. And you call it, there's snake oil things, yeah. right? And... You know, we're, we're at this cusp where everything's going translationally, right? Even our trial, there's other trials that's right. happening where we have a really good opportunity to um, show the community, whether it's research or the general public, that, you know, by targeting the biology of aging, there, you know, that's the way to do it, yeah. right? And 21st century medicine. Yeah, that's that. I mean, that's kind of what we're stuck in, right? So, um, um, but, you know, this is a critical time where, we just have to be very, very cautious on, you know, kind of the science that we report on the public that we kind of send out. I mean, you and I both know we, we talk about this, too, but, you know, we, we have an obligation as scientists to make sure we present a strong science and, and have a discussion. And if it and it goes back to kind of how I was trained. Right. Right. If the science is not good. Right. You call it out and we, we talk about it and we try to figure out because at the end of the day. Right. The goal for aging biology is to help people. Right. 
optimize their health, right? Optimize their oral health, right? I mean, you know, and and I think that's the ultimate goal. And because I, I I am surprised at you know patients in the dental chair coming to me with these longevity and ask me People what are hearing dose, about it. Yeah, yeah, what dose do I use? What do I? I'm like, you don't even know what dose you need to use, and you're gonna take these medications <laughs> like like just because yeah. somebody said this or take this supplement to yeah. say that. Like as a dentist, if I'm hearing that, like. Yeah, and I mean, it's you know, it concerns me as you bit. know. I agree with yeah, everything yeah. you said, yeah. but I mean, it's a cha- it's a challenge, right? Yeah. Because right, it, there are people out there who are less rigorous in their yep. approach to science, and there's also a big gray area. I mean, I think we do have to be sure. honest. Right in this field, there's a big gray area where there's some evidence to support, but you know, we don't know for sure. Right. And even with rapamycin, I think you can make the case, you know, we don't know for sure, right, but right. there's some pretty good evidence to, to suggest that it may actually have some benefits. So there's you, a lot you, of evidence. Yeah, there is. <laughs> but you have, I mean, what I'm, my, my point is that I think, you know, there is this big gray area and it's in that gray area that I think honest people can disagree mm-hmm. or, but I think we should also be honest that it is a gray area. Right, right, right. There right, are probabilities right. and very little certainty with some right, of these right. things. And um, yeah, especially now with, things because I, I you know i don't know if how many clinical trials were happening when you were going through you know your postdoc or whatnot right not in aging at all right exactly yeah. and now we're at this point where every you know that's that kind of now trend right yeah. so this is where i think you know the strong science is going to hold up right and not so strong science is may not going to hold up. and sure there is that gray area but um i i think you know uh, people listen to this channel or other channels as well i think you want to you know you have data out there right Read for yourself, understand what's actually happening, and um, and watch the OptiSpan YouTube channel. Yeah, and watch the OptiSpan <laughs> YouTube channel because we'll have some other content. We're, we're doing our best to, to keep it real when right, it comes yeah, to the science. Yeah. So and and take care of our health, right? Yeah. A- a- ask dentist questions. We now have technology to look at a lot of things. So, um, you know, optimize your oral health. Great. Right. Great. So that's a perfect place to end. So thank you so much, John. This yep. has been fun. Um, and uh, it's been a great discussion. And um, thank you for uh, watching the OptiSpan YouTube channel. As always, please leave comments or questions. Um, and if there's any topics you would like to see us cover, if you'd like to see John come back, leave that in the comments as well. Um, and we'll do our best to make it happen. So that's it for now. See you later.